This is Bonjour Chai, brought to you this week by the letter U for unvaccinated children. I'm Avi Feingold in Montreal, and I'm here with Alana Zakon in Toronto. We are your frozen chosen. On today's podcast, we discuss kids and services with Rabbi Rachel Cole Feingold, and Alana will grill me on what it's like to host an election debate. Alana, how's it going? I'm alive. <laughs> it's interesting uh, recording this the day after a fast. I had a very weird sleep yeah. this year. The the night of Erev Yom Kippur, I accidentally fell asleep at 8 p.m. and then woke up at 11 p.m. thinking it was the morning and ready to start my fasting day and then realized it was pitch black outside and then tried to go back to bed, lay in bed until like maybe two in the morning and then slept until 11. It was a very interesting way to set up my fast. And now I ate late at night. So this was Wednesday night into Thursday morning. Yeah, it was very discombobulating. So you missed like the ch- big chunk of the services. You were able to like start your class yeah. at eleven, basically. You, yeah, you got the jump that was kind of the goal. Else. Okay, I did. I mean, I always try to sleep in on the fast to try to get rid of as many hours as possible. How was how do you how was your fast? I can't even so speak I English have, yet. I have this like because for decades, literally, this is probably the last few years. This has been the only few years that I haven't been leading services in some capacity or another. Um, and okay. it's very, very different because when I was leading services in my 20s, my 30s, um, I you're busy the whole day. It's like a work day. So you're not thinking about right. the fast. You're just fast. You're just working. You're hmm. leading services. You're doing the musaf. You're doing this. You're doing that. And you're down to the minute. All you're doing is thinking about the work. You're not thinking about the food. You're not thinking about the fact that you're wow. dehydrated and when you're singing. And I found it just it would go. And the past few years, I'm just a congregant and I'm just sitting there and I mean, I'm praying and I'm doing all that, but it's very, very different vibe. Um, Welcome to the rest of the world's experience of Yom Kippur. Yeah, pretty much. Um, So that's what it's been like uh, fasting uh, as a congregant, but I'm generally an easy faster anyways. It doesn't really like you know come, that's good. come up in my mind i'm feeding the kids lunch i'm feeding the, i didn't feed the kids dinner this year but like i would have and i just whatever yeah. you know whatever it is it is our daughter fasted for the first time this year so that was oh, like wow you know a thing Mazel tov. and uh, yeah yeah i remember being a kid and like practice fasting before i was bat mitzvah age and seeing how far i could get into the day did you do that and i would always break it on my bubby's um a honey cake that, and so, it was like this amazing feeling. I'd w- get up to like, I don't know, 1 or 2 p.m. or something. I was a big believer in practice fasting, um, and I still am, but my wife isn't. And so there was this tension with our kid who's like, well, I don't want to fast because Yuma says I shouldn't fast until I'm re- I have to. And I'm like, no, it'll give you an opportunity to understand what it's like with like fewer consequences. Um, so she didn't end up practice fasting, but she was fine. And she seems like, you know, she's going to be okay as a faster anyway. So it is what it is. Great. Anyways. So you hosted uh, the CJN debate before Yom Kippur, right? I did. Um, that was an experience, I must say. Uh, I hosted oh, a federal please election tell debate. me more. Um, so it was interesting. I The role of a good moderator is not necessarily to, to get in the way of the candidates and let them speak, but that doesn't mean that you're not prepared. I mean, we had like days of intense, like, 
preparing and reading the platforms in depth so that we had the facts at our hands and we knew how to craft the right question that was not accusatory, but also very like focused. Pointed. Um, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. Of very pointed questions. Um, and so it was a lot of preparation. It was a lot more reading and a lot more like diving into the platforms than I ever had before. Um, so I yeah. feel like I know so much more than I did before, but the experience itself was kind of interesting. Um, just being able to ask people these questions um, that, yeah. you know, other people want to ask and being able to like call them on stuff, stuff if we had to. And uh, yeah. So if you could give a very, very quick recap, like one to two sentences of what each party's general feelings were, um, could, you, could you do that for our listeners? <sighs> Maybe, I mean, maybe, I mean, maybe there were so many topics. topics. There's so many. There topics. so many topics that we hit on. Yeah. Um, I would say that none of them really strayed far away from their party platform. Um, you can okay. read. They all have. They all have platform summaries and in in-depth platforms on their websites. Um, the the thing that I found interesting was two of the candidates were very seasoned. They were cabinet ministers and they knew how to speak in full paragraphs and just like mm. explain the platform the way that it's written and just say it. Um, and the third yeah. candidate, who actually was somebody that I knew from a long time ago, uh, we hadn't connected in a long time, but I had some you know connections with him and he's the NDP candidate and he just spoke very plainly. And I found that that was interesting mm. and that was very different. And, and, you know, I may have some issues, not a lot, uh, um, but I may have some issues with the NDP and it may not mean that I may be an NDP voter, but he was exactly the kind of person that I would want to vote for to sort of say like, I'm not your seasoned professional. I know exactly what my party yeah. is saying, but I'm just going to talk to you about it instead of like, I am repeating these things that are being Yeah, said. like regurgitating information. Um, so, you know, Dr. Berman, Hal Berman, you like, I think you knocked it out of the park for being able to be plain like that and to be very much like an everyman. Um, mm-hmm. but you know, and, and he was like, he was, they, you know, Ellen, my co-host, Ellen Bessner, who's the, the host of the CJN daily podcast was the one who called him out on the BDS stuff with, and with the NDP. Yeah, I was going to bring that up because I, I listened to the highlights on Ellen. I didn't have a chance before the fast to watch the entire hour though. It did. That's the CJN really daily, not Ellen, the Ellen show. That's, Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just to Drat. confirm. Um, thank you for that clarification. I was going to pull up Ellen DeGeneres. Um, but I, I thought it was really interesting that he said that they aren't pro uh, that they aren't pro BDS. And I was like, oh, because that's one of the things about the NDP that most makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable as someone who is like more of a left wing person. Um but then she did call him out on it. So then it kind of le- left me being like, what's the truth? But this guy clearly works for the NDP, so he can't show up and make things well, up. What was I your thought take that he had an interesting clarification where he went and said, look, yeah. he made a platform pledge about um, not like about Going not purchasing settlements. From- settlements but saying that israel we want to honor trade agreements with israel and we believe in those and that there may be individual ndp members that are you know pro bds but there are individual conservative members or liberal members and green members it was the ben and jerry's model the ben and jerry's model of of israel of, of, of diplomacy yes um, yeah, so, go. so I thought that he clarified that well. I thought that, mm-hmm. you know, I actually thought that when I called out Michael Chong on, uh, climate change and oil and gas and the fact that they are like really in the pocket of, you know, the Western provinces and the oil that's coming out of there, um, he, you know, first of all, Hal Berman kind of defended him. And I thought that that was interesting or, uh, 
I wasn't sure where that was going. I think I think he wasn't trying to defend him, but he was not really into the model that I was presenting or whatever it was, the pushback that I had. But the fact is that the Conservative Party very much believes in this idea that it's your fault if the country, if the, if the world is going to like, you know, hell in a handbasket for like climate because you're the ones buying oil and gas. Right. Oh I don't know if you heard that. So that was like... No, no, like, I, I didn't make it to that part. Yeah. So by the end of the... Check out the end of the debate. It was kind of interesting. That was the only moment that I huh. had where I was like doing pushback. But I found that it was yeah. really like... It made me realize, and there were a couple of articles that I'd read in the days since that really pointed out to me that these types of debates are are kind of like at the end of their their lifespan because oh really people are because you know we were very civil and it was very nice and interesting and but at the end of the day nothing really happened very little really happened that couldn't have been read by just reading the party platforms and one-on-one interviews where people will call out individual candidates are going to be the future that these debates where three people have an hour to discuss eight topics and moderated by two people by one or two people Mm. it's it's not a very feasible like it, it had its moment historically and now that moment is pretty much like done um and i wonder if it's I, I like think i'm okay maybe, with it yeah maybe it's i don't know about focusing on one particular issue that they you want to get more information about like i think that there mm-hmm. is some value because it becomes really impersonal when you're just looking at a, a campaign on a website as opposed to actually seeing a real person talk like what personally interested me about going to look back at the footage was to see like who were the faces speaking because i don't necessarily i don't have cable tv i'm not necessarily watching uh, I don't know any other live debates, um, and you know, you I want to cbc.ca and catch all. Of can I of see? Clips, right? <laughs> well, you know, I, I'm very, I'm, I'm honestly, I grew up um, being completely politically uninvolved, and it's really only in my adulthood that I've started to to learn more. I think I've brought that up in mm-hmm. the past, so I am learning new things all the time. Yeah, I, um, and I, I mean, look, it's it's related to this thing you know I, there was a push a couple of years ago um to eliminate mantles have you heard about this push you know what a no. mantle is i do you know what a mantle a mantle is a pan a mantle is a panel like an academic panel of at a all men that's of all men yeah oh <laughs> and so there was this push to that's say fair. that i won't as a man i won't speak on a mantle right if i see that the other panelists mm. are all men i won't speak and there was a pledge like a lot of a lot of academics a lot of scholars at conferences were being asked to sign this and it made sense until one woman actually when said don't just eliminate mantles eliminate panels because panel sessions Whoa. with like five people right speaking about a topic you never really get anything like here heard right it's basically just everybody gets to spew their few minutes of thing and they're they're jockeying for space and like you know interest and at the end of the day um panels are are just not good things to be part of and it's better to speak to one maybe two people at most right with a moderator um and the, those types of conversations are much mm. more valuable and i think that the political uh, approach to that will be the possibly I, I would like to see that as the future of of political uh discussions and dialogues um yeah i i, I don't know i like do you know what i mean you've had that experience where you you hear a panel like session at some sort of a mm-hmm. conference and you basically everybody's like just trying to get their thing said and there's no real constructive value to having five people speaking instead of one i think it de- i think it depends on how it's structured but i see what you mean that it's better to focus in on on a particular issue than especially for an election you're covering so much ground you know 
Yeah. Better than um, a Twitter war, I guess. But, you know, you do yeah, your thing, yeah, politicians. <laughs> Anyways, so, you know, that was my experience. I really enjoyed it. Um, I learned a lot. I had a great time with Ellen, with the team at Sija. Um, great time speaking to these people. And uh, will I do it again if I'm asked? Perhaps. Maybe I'll tell them. Let's do it one-on-one. Anyways, speaking of the election, um, Josh is not joining us today because we were recording in the morning and he has a day job. And he, in his words, there was really nothing Jewy and chewy that is this late breaking in the election. Um, the election is Monday. I have a feeling most of our vo- most of our listeners have already voted. Uh, I talked to people and a lot of people are taking advantage of advanced voting. So uh, we are um, assuming that that's that. But next week, we will come back with an expanded discussion with Josh um, with a recap and a, you know, a real t- breakdown of everything that happened in the election, all the surprises, all the upsets, and all the newest and jewiest stuff that we can take away from our uh, new governing uh, body uh, that has yet to be formed, um, but will be formed uh, between now and then. So stay tuned for that. Um, And before we get to our main topic, let's hear from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Atelier Lou Bijouterie in Montreal, Quebec. Atelier Lou specializes in watches and custom design jewelry, along with a curated selection of designer jewelry. Visit us online or in person, and Eric Goldberg will help make your jewelry dreams come true. Atelier Lou is offering a promo code for all Bonjour High listeners using BON18 at checkout for 10% off your order at atelierlou.com. Now that most congregations are returning to some semblance of services, one of the big open questions that remain is how are children returning to synagogue after 18 months away or more? There doesn't seem to be a consensus amongst the various congregations across our country, and here to unpack some of the issues with us is Rabbi Rachel Cole Feingold. Rabbi Rachel is a member of the clergy team at Congregation Shar HaShemayim and the president of the Montreal Board of Rabbis. Rachel, welcome to the program. Thank you. It's great to be here with the Frozen Chosen. Hi, Rachel. I've I've waited a long time. Hi, Alana. Um, do the people know that we are married to each other? I mean, if the last um, name didn't give it away. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Just okay. a total, I mean, there's I was a- trying to like professionalize it. <laughs> this is not nepotism. You're here because you deserve yes. to be here <laughs> as the president of the Board of Rabbis. You know, I have to say that these um, many months listening to the podcast, like there are so many times that you guys are speaking, especially you, Avi, and I just want to answer back. Oh, I have something to say. And um, I guess it's just the pattern of us, you know, generally discussing and arguing and debating about many things uh, in in life. But uh, now I finally get to, you get be to here do, and it. do it. I'm picturing you yeah. with like a notebook of like every <laughs> single thing you want to say, and you came prepared today, and you're like, okay, episode one. This is what I have to say about this, right? Yes, yes. Oh, I have so much to say, but we're gonna stick to the topic. Okay, let's do that. And uh, thank you so much for having me. I spend so much time thinking about this issue, and I, I just want to start by framing it a little bit. You know, now that adults are generally fully vaccinated. Um, the the fact that kids are unvaccinated presents a, a sort of a, a deeper question. Um, but the the reality is that we do 
hope and pray that children that, that vaccines will be available to children under 12 within the next few months, maybe by the end of 2021. They're saying certainly by the beginning of 2022. So this is not a long term issue. That being said, it has been a long term issue. And if it will be a good two years from the last time a child has been in synagogue, uh, two years is a really long time in a kid's life. Yeah. So um, and I, I actually wanted to I just I wanted to share I wanted to begin by sharing a, a personal anecdote something that happened with one of our children I don't even know if I told you about this Avi oh I don't know <laughs> but um, it was a few months ago it was it was already maybe it was this past spring so it had been about a year since our kids have been to synagogue our synagogue has um, a policy of of no one who is unvaccinated is able to come and even before vaccinations were available we had a, a, a policy of no children in the synagogue because. Basically, kids in synagogue should be able to be kids. Kids should yeah. be able to run around. And we were concerned about you know, children being vectors and, and spreading the virus. So um, this was in the spring of 2021. And I remember it was in the evening and I had left something in my office and, uh, and I was going to go back to, to grab it. And um, our youngest daughter, who is eight, I guess so she was seven and a half at the time, um, I, I, I was with her and I said, oh, I've, I've got to run back to my office. I said, do you want to come? And she said, yes, 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 because our synagogue is like our child, our children's home away from home. They hadn't been there in so long. And so um, she came with me to my office. I grabbed what I needed. And then before leaving the building, of course, by the way, the, the building was empty. You know, there was nothing going on in the building. And generally, like I said, children hadn't been in the building. But it was an empty building. And I, I said, do you want to take the long way out? Like We have a, a, a massive synagogue building. And, and she was very excited to just walk through these halls, these empty halls that had been so familiar to her. Now, she was at the time, I guess she was in grade two and um, we passed by in a in in one of the lobbies where she and her sisters and her friends used to hang out quite a lot every Shabbat we passed a, a big piece of art on the wall that happened to have um, Hebrew writing on it it had a verse from the Torah and she stopped and she looked at it and she said I can read that oh wow and I realized that it had been so long yeah. since she had been in the synagogue building that before, like when she was there last, she wasn't a reader and now she was a reader mm -hmm. because her, her Hebrew, I guess, in grade one was still kind of sketchy. Shaky. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. <laughs> and now she was a grade two student in a Jewish day school. And, and what I realized is that kids change so fast and the world looks so different to Very them. True. And if we're not able to have them in synagogue, what does that mean for their upbringing for, you know, for these formative years? Two years so. is, is a quarter of her life. Right. It's crazy. That, and, and if, and if and you're half a, of the life that she remembers. Don't yeah. underestimate children. Right, exactly. I remember so much of my childhood. It's not even funny. It's actually just bringing me back. I was, of course, I was now picturing my, my childhood synagogue uh, in Montreal and that feeling. And I think I probably would have done the same thing too, of like walking around the halls. I don't know about your kids, but I didn't spend a lot of time actually in the actual synagogue part yes. of the yeah, show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but and, being and too, in... growing up in New York. Yeah. Hang out. But like being in the building to me was like a formative part of my childhood of like going downstairs and just, you know, wandering Absolutely. the halls and playing with other like Jewish kids. And it, I don't know, that's, it felt like part of my Shabbat experience or my Yom Tov experience of like, playing um, with with other kids in a Jewish environment, whether I realized that's what it was or not so, at the time. 
so walk us through some of this. What I mean, you know very well the city, the synagogues in Montreal, and I'm sure you know what synagogues are doing elsewhere, and you probably mm-hmm. have some idea of what's going on in synagogues in America and the rest of the world. Um, what is the spectrum of kids' participation currently? Let's say the past four to six months or two to three months, the high holidays, whatever it is, across Montreal, Canada, and the rest of the world? So I think the way I'll frame it is that um, we have two competing values that are intention. Synagogues are taking very seriously the concern for health and safety um, in the midst of a pandemic, and at the same time, um, the value of continuity, right? The value of children's presence. So um, every synagogue, regardless of what the decision they've come to has been, every synagogue feels the gravitas of the moment. Um, in my capacity at Shar Shemaim, um, my portfolio is to work with all of our youth and young family programs. Um, and we've had to be really creative in the ways that we engage with children and families. Toward the beginning of pandemic, everything was over Zoom. Um, in more recent months, we've done everything outdoors. So if children mm. are going to be present, um, then it's only been outside. Um, over the high holidays, we had a family service that I led that was out in our courtyard with, you know, we had 150 people there yesterday, maybe more. Um, children and adults of uh, adults and children of all ages. Um, I know other synagogues have um, have allowed children to enter only into a balcony and accompanied by an adult. Um, other synagogues allow children over a certain age, so children age 10 and up, for example, because we know we can trust children uh, who are older, yeah, to keep their mask on, to stay next to their parents. And then some synagogues have had a, a really a zero children policy only because they're, you know, they're communicating to their membership that, um, uh, that, th- that this is a space where only vaccinated individuals are welcome. Um, at right. our synagogue, we, we've now allowed, um, if children want to enter, especially for bar and bat mitzvahs for celebrations, um, they just have to present a negative COVID test. So nothing is perfect. But there are, and there are, to be fair, there are also synagogues that anything goes, that all kids are allowed anywhere, anytime. So I think I think all synagogues have thought deeply about it. And some, I, I know we were in the U.S. visiting um, my brother and his family in the U.S. And they had kids present, but it was an outdoor service and a tent. Mm. And there were yeah. many children present. Right. Um, you know, I can't speak to parts of the community where they aren't concerned about Safety Look, the, or regulations the, at all? The, uh, the genesis for this topic, the idea where this came from was a couple of days ago, a few days ago, uh, there was a story that came out of Kingston, Ontario, where uh, the Queen's University Chabad um, was called out because the rabbi uh, was not vaccinated and was hosting very large services. And one of the points that came out was, and his children aren't vaccinated and they're running around mm-hmm. also all the time. And that whether the children were part of this story or not, and even mm-hmm. though it was mainly mm-hmm. college students, um, the idea that like that was that the kids are around in some way in services forms like this extra layer of risk that other synagogues that are doing everything else might have. And that is not only true of, let's say, the Queen's University Chabad, but there are other synagogues where kids are running around and totally fine. And we can all agree maybe that that's probably not a good idea. But what you're talking about in terms of like the balance, right, where how do we deal with public health versus the spiritual health of the future of our community, right, right, is at the core of where this is. I think, look, we haven't, no one's done a comprehensive survey of 
how are synagogues dealing with this question of children in the synagogue? It will be interesting. Someday someone will write a dissertation about this, and then we'll have some hard data. There are no articles about this. We were trying to research mm-hmm. this. There really? was so little spoken about this over the past, you know, six months or a year. Yeah, I, th- I think that that's tragic. I mean, we need to be thinking about it. We need to be thinking in general. I think it's a challenge um, to to address the question of how are kids feeling welcomed at synagogue? How are families with children not being shushed? But at the same time, how do we educate parents to model synagogue appropriate behavior that actually it is okay to say to your child, we don't run around here. If you need a break, let's step out for five, ten minutes and then we'll come back in. Just in, in normal times, I always... Um, I try to educate our parents in terms mm. of how to educate their children. I think when it, when you mention a you know something like a Chabad, that's tricky because most Chabad houses um, operate from a family model. The family, the Chabad family, are the spiritual leaders as as a whole, as a unit of that community. So it would be, I, I think, you'd be hard pressed to say that any student coming to that Chabad wouldn't assume that the the children would be present. And I think some of this is about just getting the information. Mm to the people who are attending so that they know what they're walking into and they can make an informed decision. And I think that's something that every synagogue is doing that I've spoken to throughout Montreal. I speak to a lot of the rabbis in Montreal. Everyone is is communicating this really clearly. Here, what you, here's what you can expect when you walk in to this building. Um, if you're not comfortable with that, that's fine. Yeah. We respect that. Um, and I know of one synagogue who said we're allowing children only on bar and bat mitzvah weeks. And so any of the regular congregants who, you know, who aren't comfortable with that will choose to go to another synagogue that week. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Well, you, you have kids together. So have you spoken to your children? <laughs> we have the same children. <laughs> we, we, we went halvesies on some babies. Like Anyhow, um, so have you actually... Ha- We're not going to get into an <laughs> argument on air. <laughs> I mean, you do you, but uh, have, we, have you spoken to your kids? This uh, is fun, actually. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Have we spoken? You you were saying something. I'm getting so distracted by this, but it's okay. Um, Have you actually had a conversation with your kids about how they've been feeling about not being able to be presidential? Um, Because I don't know. It it makes me wonder that there. I this always comes back. I feel like it's so cyclical on the show because we talk about topics that kind of cross over each other. But we talked about COVID a while ago Mm -hmm. and I was saying, you know, there have been periods in Jewish history where we certainly weren't able to go to do normal things and we managed to survive and the traditions are still here. So I don't know if two years away from Shul is going to make or break people's Jewish identity, but I'm curious, you know, have your kids spoken up about this at all or have you asked them? They miss Shul. I think you'll, you can answer the personal. I'm going to go historical a bit just to answer to that. I think Mm -hmm. that the unique piece about what we're going through now is that we're in a place historically where uh, so much communal life and so much of kids' social Jewish education comes from shul, if you're a shul-going family, um, right, to supplement what's going on in schools and stuff like that. Whereas, you know, a thousand years ago during the Crusades, when things were very, very different, right, the kids may have felt like things were very different now, but Jewish life was primarily at home anyways. And so that may have changed things around hmm. differently. And I think that what's what we're what we're anxious about, right, in terms of communal life and children right now is that so much of kids' Jewish development happens around in and around synagogue life, in and around shul life. And the as a result of that, 
um, missing it for two years is mm-hmm. a huge gap. I also think that it depends on the kind of family and the kind of observance we're talking about. Um, I wouldn't say that it's only for the regular shulgoers like our kids. But, um, you know, yesterday I saw some families who had not been in synagogue for two years almost two years, because they are uh, Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur families. They're high holiday families. Yeah. And I mean, just looking at these kids, they're a head taller. So much time has passed. And this has to be still a core part of their identity. And yet their parents are facing an impossible situation. And I, I think, you know, the the other thing I was very mindful of yesterday, um, you know, with this crowd of, of young families is the way that parents have suffered. We know that having kids on Zoom school has compromised their their parents' lives, social lives and work lives. But also not being able to bring your kids into the synagogue means their parents can't go in the synagogue. I guess they, right. they could at this point. They could switch off. Parents do that a lot anyway. Like, I'll go and wa- you watch the kids and then you go. Well, and- you go to Shul because it's your job. Right. And I end up staying home the- <laughs> because it's not my job and well, but we, Shul. But we hit, our own, we hit our own balance. And, um, and yet, I-, I was very conscious of including adult content in what we did yesterday with the families because these families, by and large, were not necessarily going to tag team. They were coming as a family, they were staying outside. They're also mindful of the risk that they might present as parents of unvaccinated children, and they may want to respect the the vaccinated space, so to speak, and not enter even for themselves. So it was, um, it, it was really, it's sad. It saddens me. And when you think about what everyone has missed for these couple of years, and I, I think, you know, it's um, important to think ahead by a few months and to to ask ourselves as Jewish leaders, how will we welcome them back? Mm-hmm. How will we ensure that parents and kids, when those vaccinations come through for the under 12 set, how can we ensure that there's something exciting and accessible and educational in terms of helping them through this transition back home because we want them to feel as they have always felt that their synagogue is another home for themselves and for their children. And you're right, Alana, I think kids are resilient. They'll learn quickly and they'll relearn quickly. But it's it's been a, a huge loss. And, you know, I, I think about the different phases of a child's growth. And if you go from age six to eight, it's one thing. But if you go from age 10 to 12, those are formative years. Who says that a 12 or a 13 year old is going to want to come back in? We saw that with Jewish camping when they missed a summer. It was really hard for an adolescent to say, yeah, I'm going to go back there, but I don't know if those friends are going back and are we friends anymore? Like mm. all of the, the messy parts of adolescence um, will, re- will rear its head also with regard to synagogue. And we have to be able to cater to each age and stage appropriately as we, we open our doors, God willing, soon. Are you going to, it sounds like you're gearing up for like a special Shabbat the week that kids are allowed back in. To like- <laughs> I don't I don't think it's going to be a one week because even when vaccinations become available, there will be kind of a rolling like vaccinating and then waiting two weeks post full vaccine. But yes, we've discussed this many times amongst the clergy. But you should have a, like every month. Ha- like, yes. This is the 11 year, the 11 year old Shabbat, <laughs> the 10 year old Shabbat. And the- yeah, we've discussed like what will children's programming look like? Yeah the back to shul programming for our synagogue. And I'm sure every rabbi in every synagogue is thinking that way. Is your shul doing any other activities for kids outside of actual just like Shabbat or Yom Tov programming? Because I was really involved in the youth group at my shul growing up. And I think that was a big part of the experience. It wasn't just like, 
being in the synagogue on the days where you had to be there, mm-hmm. but like being in the in the facilities, you know. But you were at you were at Beth Tikva. Yeah, yeah, I was at Beth Tikva in it? Montreal. There's a lot of Beth I mean, Tikvas around Canada. Let's be specific. That's correct. That is true. <laughs> there's a Beth Tikva in Ottawa. There's a Beth Tikva in Toronto. Is there one in Vancouver? No, not that. There's a Beth something. It's like the Springfield. <laughs> anyway, anyways, but Beth Tikva, to be fair, was legendary for their youth programming. It was pretty great right? really? when you were. Yeah, and I they were I didn't... they always historically had like really really high bar yeah. for youth. I also I, I can't but help but pl- oh, go, go ahead, go I, ahead. Yeah. <laughs> I, I want I want to plug what we're doing because we have continued our youth programming throughout the pandemic. Our teens were showing up even on Zoom during the real lockdown. They were showing up weekly for our for our youth group programming. Our Hebrew school kept going, and now our our new year of Hebrew school, our weekly afternoon school, is going to a hybrid model where we'll be outdoors once a month in person and then on Zoom the other three weeks of the month so that Great. families can ease back in. Um, so we, we really never stopped, but there is going to be a, a big shift when we can finally breathe easy and bring our kids back. Mm-hmm. We want to be ready to welcome them. Yeah. No, I was just, I'm really having a lot of flashbacks in this conversation to my childhood. I feel like being part of the youth... <laughs> we love it, Alana. Lay down on the couch and tell us about I will. it. Uh, I, think, I think youth group was like, a way bigger part of my formative years than I realized because I did some of my first mm-hmm. professional style theater uh, shows at Beth Tikva Youth Group. Cause <sighs> Again, because Beth Tikva was very famous <laughs> was for great. their theater performances. Yeah, but they actually... Most other shows did not have that. They brought in but, like but, a... But dir- nothing surprised. wrong. No, no, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like belittling it. I'm just saying <laughs> that that was so about great the, about that. I still hear about the Char plays. The, the Char plays in the 50s oh. and 60s yes. that it was exactly. such a big deal. But, but, but what you're saying is true, that these are formative years. Yeah, they're these formative, formative years. formative years. And yet, and yet our health and safety is a Jewish value as well. Agreed. So that's why I started by saying these are competing values. They're competing Jewish values at play. And we're all stuck between them and just doing our best. Can you tell us something about what the epidemiologists are are going? Because cause it seems like this the tension here mm. is that <laughs> is that the synagogues want kids in shul and the, and the families want kids in shul. And peop, many people, one of the things I was noticing, sorry, as a, as a sidebar, is that you would expect in a shul with so much decorum, Right, like as the Shah in Montreal, mm-hmm. and so much focus, and the people have a hard time with yelling and screaming and shul mm-hmm. that you would have somebody make some comment about how wonderful it is finally that there's no screen yelling and screaming of little kids <laughs> and shul. Never but that is never screaming. that never happened. I have people yeah, that say people we miss. can't wait. Older yes. people who are otherwise yes. very focused on the decorum say, right. "I I really w- want to hear those voice those kids' yeah. voices back yeah. in shul again." So on the one mm. hand, you have this, but on the other hand, there are these epidemiologists that are basically saying there is no risk that is valuable. And last week's, you know, we we were discussing this last week in my uh, my little mini rant there about people who you know, say that no risk is good enough, right? A- any sort of risk shouldn't be mitigated, right? By, by, yeah, by I remember the community. that rant. I had what um, to say that. Like, yeah, <laughs> so, so how do we balance? What are the epidemiologists just saying? Yeah. And how do we balance that as communal professionals? I, I will say my colleague Adam Shire always says that if, uh, if you go to a, a synagogue, any synagogue has to pass the stroller test. Oh. Are there strollers parked out front? And that's how you know this is a strong community. It's really hard because none of us have passed the stroller test. In the last couple of years, um, there was uh, to speak to the epidemiologist question, or the I, I am in touch regularly for with 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 medical professionals who advise us on the board of rabbis, and through the synagogue, um, and I, I I wouldn't set this up as it's like 
the synagogues versus the doctors. It's very much not that. The synagogues all are asking doctors for advice and guidance. Um, and there was one, actually one synagogue, I didn't mention this, one synagogue that I know of that set up um, rapid tests right outside the synagogue on the high holidays to allow unvaccinated children to test and to enter. Uh, but to they're disregarding the epidemiologists so who wait, go and wait. say that rapid tests are worse than no tests. So you, okay, you know what I've shared with you that but when I, also, I when, no, after I mean, hearing about that, doctors have said, yeah. after hearing about that, I, I went and, and did a little bit more research and I did inquire and not everybody would say it that strongly as, as, as you're saying it or as one particular physician had said it. Um, but there is a consensus that a PCR test is far more preferable than a rapid antigen test. I'm not here to talk about the science or the medicine behind that. Um, and every synagogue is doing their very best. But we are looking to the medical professionals for guidance. And then we also have to kind of live with the reality that we're not in the space that we were a year ago when we had bar mitzvahs with only 10 people in the room. Um, or it wasn't even last year, Yom Kippur, we shut down, if I recall, here mm-hmm. in Quebec. Yep. Um, and uh, and we're at a point where we're allowed, in Quebec at least, up to 250 people in a in a house of worship. And so we recognize, you know, for a bar or bat mitzvah, uh, we want to allow people to bring their unvaccinated guests if we can do that safely. And the question is, what does do that safely look like? And that's where every community is trying their best to answer that question. What are the long-term, you know, effects that you're going to see? Meaning, let's say in two years from now, we no longer have a pandemic. Um, and specifically with regards to, to thinking about the, the future of kids and, and kids in, in services and shuls in general, what have you learned that will uh, change the way that we do kids programming in five years from now? I think we'll bounce back. As we've said, oh, I think families yeah, will but- will come back and, and they're aching for it. And especially at a time when we've all been so isolated, they want that sense of connection and community and a sense of, of uh, spirituality. Um, what I do think, and I say this to many of our bar and bat mitzvah families, is that kids or families who have been through this time, especially in their formative milestone year, this will be a story they will tell forever. This will be, oh, that year, that pandemic year, that was my bat mitzvah year. That was my bar mitzvah year. That was my child. And here's how we managed it. And I think, you know, Judaism is a storytelling tradition. And it will be really amazing and interesting to see how we tell this story. How can we craft this narrative and infuse it with meaning and purpose and even the divine, you know, can we infuse it with Judaism as we tell this story in the generations to come? And I think we will. And that those stories have yet to be written. You think there's a holiday where we're going to have a ritual mask wearing? Oh God, like I hope, I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> and then we're going to decorate it with like pomegranates Absolutely. and shofars yes. or something. <laughs> Glittery kids mask. Avi loves Judaica. Off. Don't get him started. I yeah. Anyway, <laughs> he has definite opinions on Judaica and art of all kinds. Amazing. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna come back, invited or not. This is fun. No, it's great. Okay, <laughs> I'm enjoying this. Well, I was about to invite you for something else right now, but uh, anyway. Yes. So that's right. That's been wonderful. Thank you so much um, for really helping us un like you know Unpack. really get a sense of where things are at and where things are Unpack. going. What 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 it sounds like and and it seems really fascinating based on what you just said is that. There are many families that may have taken for granted the idea of coming to services, 
because they've been just been doing it with their kids every week and not having it for two years. Not so much that the kids are home all day on Saturdays or whatever it is, um, but they take it. They're no longer taking it for granted. They really recognize the value that synagogue has provided to their family life. And I'd add one more thing, which is that many families have taken more ownership of their holidays or their Shabbat, Shabbatot, Shabbats, um, because they weren't allowed to be in the synagogue. I know many, many synagogues, including our own, that had take-home boxes, you know, a high holiday family box and a Shabbat box and these kinds of things. And it will be really amazing to see that new sense of empowerment and ownership now coming back into the community. Interesting. Yeah. I did start a program with my Jewish Living Lab on that right. called JIY, right. Jew It Yourself, yes. where people were learning to do Judaism at home. And we've all been um, doing yeah. that. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Um, speaking of Judaism at home, we generally ask a rabbi um, to give a short word of wisdom um, on this podcast. And uh, because we have one right here with us uh, today, um, can you share something with us? Sure. We are hovering in between the high holy days of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and the festival of Sukkot. Sukkot happens to be my favorite holiday um, for many reasons, one of which is that it, it really forces us out of our comfort zone. And it is a perfect continuity from the, the experience that we just had, where we, we stripped away all of the externals. We sort of challenged our assumptions uh, about ourselves and about our life. We said that it's not our bodies or what's on the outside that matters. It's what's on the inside in our souls. You know, on Yom Kippur, we, we shed our physical bodies in many ways. And having done all that work and, and been transformed, I hope, in some way by it, we're now ready to rejoice. The festival of Sukkot is the festival of Simcha, of, of joy. But the kind of joy that we find on Sukkot is a deeper joy. It's not the joy that we find in materialism, in a nice new car or a, a beautiful outfit, although we, we may wear something beautiful on, on any given holiday. Um, but it's, it's not what's fancy and, and well-appointed in our homes. It's going outdoors into a house that's not really a house with a roof that's not really a roof and understanding that what brings us true joy, deeper joy, are the things that matter most. Everything that we've spent the last week, 10 days, even months since the month of Elul, building up and strengthening. And so we take what's inside of us, we bring it outside of our houses into a sukkah, into the divine embrace. And what we fill our sukkah with are the things that matter to us, the people we love, uh, time with our family, meals, blessings, prayers, guests, physical guests, or the ushbizin, the spiritual guests of our ancestors. We bring those all outside into, like I said, outside of our comfort zone and into the elements, appreciating nature, appreciating God's world. We do that for a whole week and we kind of seal it in for the winter. And so I think of Sukkot as an opportunity to consolidate all the work that we've done through these festivals, through these high holy days, and to, in, a, in many ways, preserve it, to use a, a harvest term, right? We're bringing in the harvest, we're making preserves to give us strength and fortitude as we head into the winter. So I'm really looking forward to Sukkot this year, and as, as I do every year. And I wish all of our listeners a Chag Sukkot Sameach v'hayita ach Sameach. We should find only happiness, only joy, but a deeper kind of joy, a joy that brings us light from the inside out. Thank you, Rabbi Rachel Cole-Feingold. Thank you for coming on the show. And I am sure that we will have you again. Thank you. Soon. Thank you. 
Uh, Alana, what's been your nachas of the week? This is our nachas time. Nachas time. I have like real nachas this week, like the epitome of the word nachas. Um, so I've been staying with some relatives uh, in Toronto before I settle into a new place. And I've had the privilege of living with the only remaining Holocaust survivor in my extended family, who was my great grandmother's first cousin and closest friend, which has been really meaningful for me. And during Yom Kippur, um, as you know, I slept in until 11. Um, so I actually got to spend quite a bit of time with him during the afternoon before I headed back to Shul. And it was really touching. Um, and he's been telling me a lot of stories about his childhood before the war, during the war, coming to Canada. Um, and, you know, there's so few survivors left. And I feel honestly really touched and privileged to be able to have this many conversations over the course of the last few weeks. That sounds really beautiful and touching. It is. Uh, my nachas is also family uh, related, but uh, a little more joyous. Not that that's joyous. That's joyous. A little more sukkah related, I guess. Um this is the earliest that I've ever put up my sukkah. I've managed to Ooh, uh, get it up already. Um, on uh, Wednesday, it was it was mostly up except for the schach, and that's about an hour. It's ready for decorating. It's also the biggest that I've ever managed to get it up this year because I have a modular model uh, design that I, I designed myself with PVC pipe. It's yeah, I was going to ask. What... Oh, Go oh, ahead. Oh. You were going to ask. It's one of those ones with the... I was going to ask what kind of sukkah. Is it the material kind, like the wood? What do you use for schach? Like, tell us. So I don't use... Paint a, a picture. I, I found the kits to be kind of soulless. They're kind of like, oh, here's a bunch of pre-cut, you know, things with little <laughs> Velcro tabs and snap lock metal things and stuff like that. It was not for me. Um, I DIY'd it. I use PVC pipe because it's always available and it's always around. Um, and it's mm-hmm. very durable and it's waterproof. And I made a frame uh, about five years ago mm-hmm. and it's expandable as a result of that. You can always like go find more pipe and just add more sections to the walls. Oh, um, and so this year fun. it's about 18 by 10. Um, so that's a in feet. I know it's it's Canada. It's about uh, six meters by three or something like that. Uh, three and a bit. Um, and mm-hmm. so I use PVC pipe for the frame. I use um, heavy duty tarps um, that are nine feet by like 12 so that they wrap up and down perfectly um, for the walls. Mm-hmm. And for the schach, I do use those mats because they are the most convenient and easiest uh, to use. Even the though bamboo. The bamboo mats. They, 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 they're no longer just tubes yeah, of yeah, bamboo. Yeah. I've seen people do them it. Out. They're a fortune. The, they the cost a lot of money. In the States, you can really? sometimes find it home depot just regular bamboo like fencing which you which you're allowed to use as schach uh, for the most part um but i yeah. go to the jewish store and i pay you know the jewish tax on that and i uh the jewish store <laughs> the jewish the jewish store this you know what i mean the judaica stores and the tax that they charge you for yeah, anything yeah. that ha- is remotely like jewish um yeah. and um i unroll those onto the roof and then that's it uh i it you're, are you going to be in Montreal at all over the course of Sukkot? No, you, you should come over. Nope. No, I'm going to be in Toronto there you go. Um, next year. If I'm you gonna... are in Montreal next and you want Montreal. to experience the fine gold Sukkah experience, uh, message me privately on the uh, on the various socials, uh, and you you are welcome to the to the Bonjour Chai Sukkah. Right. Let's 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 get the Bonjour Chai people together um, for a Bonjour Chai Sukkah experience together or separate. If you just happen to be around for a night and want to come for a drink in my Sukkah, um, I, I welcome you to it. So message me. Uh, I'm around and uh, let's uh, let's take 
get some bonjour high, uh, you know, energy going in that sukkah. That's my sukkah experience, and that's my nachas, getting it up early so the kids can decorate it. Sounds great. Thank you for listening to Bonjour High for Friday, September 17th. We're a day late, but we understandably couldn't record on Yom Kippur. Our producer is Michael Freeman. Technical production by Andre Goulet. Our music is by SoCalled. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our new page at the cjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a comment and a rating on the platform of your choice. I'm Avi Feingold. And I'm Ilana Zakon. 